You're listening to Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory. Well, Kia ora koutou. welcome to Circuit Cast, and this is the fifth in our 2018 series of Artists in Conversation. With me here, just ahead of her exhibition at Trish Clark Gallery, is Stella Brennan. Kia ora, Stella. Kia ora. And on the Skype from London, Sean Cubitt. Kia ora, Sean. Kia ora. Well, just to introduce you both briefly, Stella, you're based here in Auckland, and Stella has a practice spanning the handmade, new media, curation, installation, social projects, and urban design, and Stella's work has been described as dealing with navigating the space and time between human subjects, prizing open history, its losses, its possibilities, interrogating colonialism, industrialization, and computerization. Is that okay, Stella? You reckon that will work? That sounds comprehensive. I wonder what I do in my spare time. (laughs) Yeah, not a lot of time there. And Sean, uh, an academic based in London, a professor at Goldsmiths, where you teach and write about the history and philosophy of media, uh, and are interested in the environmental impacts of digital media, the media arts, video, technologies, political aesthetics, and, and you have previously taught at the University of Waikato. How did you guys both first meet, Stella? Well, Sean was involved in setting up a residency when he was at Waikato, and I was the first resident artist. What brought you to the Waikato, Sean? It was uh, 2000. I just nailed my professorship in the UK. I was very involved with the Fact Foundation, which Stella exhibited at during the Liverpool Biennial. I was on a short research break up in Dundee, and my wife spotted this, who grew up in Motueka saw this job at Waikato and said, why not apply for it? And we thought, yeah, why not? Let's just start all over again. And Bevin Yeatman, who was working at Waikato there at the time, had this brilliant idea of setting up a digital artist in residence. And with the help of John Hurrell, who was then at the Waikato Museum, we thought Stella would be a fantastic first artist to bring in because of her curatorial work, her writing work, as well as her own artistic practice. Well, this was kind of the dawn of a great new era for new media art, supposedly. Uh, I think a couple of years earlier, Stella, you were the co-founders of ADA, it's the Artera Digital Arts Network. Um, well, this was actually something that Sean kind of prompted, poked me into getting on with. So it was after I met Sean that that all, that all started, really. But was things were more hopeful about its future? I think the real golden age of... The hopeful internet was the 90s, the very early days from uh, 93 when the Mosaic browser first came in. Everybody was really excited and this was going to be the world of many-to-many communication. It was going to be the wild um, electronic frontier, as uh, the EFF used to call it. It had an extraordinary sense of community and there was a huge raft of digital art which had really begun back in the 60s but suddenly we had this medium which was effectively a distribution medium first you know most media are production media but this was really a distribution medium the opportunity in the 1990s was that none of the big corporations had the faintest clue how to make any money out of it they tried to turn it into broadcasting they tried to turn it into magazines And none of that really worked. And there was a huge financial crisis as a result in 2003, the big crash in the uh, dot-com crash. But out of the ashes of that, a number of companies that have been relatively small 
and had begun in the late 90s, suddenly became what we now call the FANG com companies, so Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, along with companies like eBay. They had business models that were based on network communication for the first time. And they're tracking the cookie economy, the um, economy of AdSense and edge rank became the dominant feature. It's really characteristic that there was a huge movement in net art right through the 90s into the early 2000s. And since then, although obviously many artists use networks and make art about as well as in the internet, there's fewer opportunities now to really change or ameliorate the landscape. There are some technical things in the background of that as well, the rise of push media. I think the rot set in with cascading style sheets where you, the user couldn't actually change the nature of the stuff they were looking at. You just had to take the feed. And that's really changed the level of interaction, the quality of interaction. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about this realm is how people have stuck to their 8, eight and 16 mil guns. Uh, that work seems very fresh again because it's not the obvious choice, but it is very textural. You know, it's very located. I'm thinking of like um, Nova Paul or Luke Willis-Thompson. And of course, it's like, well, didn't Brian Eno say that feature films are the opera of the 20th century? You know, it's the paradigmatic, aspirational form as well. So I guess with my practice, it's definitely not that. It's something much more kind of grubby and kind of momentary. One of the topics I'd really like to think about is um, this return to video. Am I right in thinking it's quite a while since you made any video work? Yeah. Yeah, I was looking at the um, Black Flags show that you did in okay. 2016. So one of the things that, that I think is, is interesting is that you consistently throughout your work, you've used texts in various ways. And I was kind of interested that it, with these two works, with Pacific Century and Object Permanence, you've got one which uses voiceover and one that uses on-screen text. Yes. And then back to this immediately previous work in uh, at the Trish Clark, you had these uh, textile with burnt-in text. And what's the difference between a physically still piece of text, a moving piece of text, and a voice reading a text? Well, with Black Flags, which was a sort of it was almost like a, a room, a space, like a square that was defined by these sort of three walls of text. It was about partly about James K. Baxter, who died just up the road from where I used to live. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of a location. We're trying to make the suburbs mythic or locate the mythic in the everyday. But I was, it was quite a specific attempt to do the kinds of things that I was doing in the videos in a physical way because I it's kind of, you feel, feel a sense of powerlessness to an extent when you have to have electricity to, for, thing, for, for your thing to work yeah this is the thing because I think my my practice in video is very much material it's very much based in the fact that my training is a sculptural training um, and so I wanted to go back to see if I could do the sorts of things that I was doing in video which is again related to the things I was doing as a writer about other people's work with a physical object and something that wouldn't disappear when someone flicked the light switch off and so that with those works, I was, I was thinking about the book, 
so the, the burnt flags, they were folded in half and then I actually just used a hot wire and burnt the words through the two layers. So they kind of opened out like a Rorsuch blot or something. So you could read them mm. from both sides. And so I was thinking about the book as a technology, um, language as a technology, and, and I guess something I kind of made more explicit with this latest work is narrative as technology, which is actually something I, I got from a, something Al Gore said <laughs> once. <laughs> You know, that narrative is the oldest form of technology. Ooh. So if you think about narrative as technology, well, how does that change what you think about narrative and how does it change what you think about technology? And that comes out really nicely in the um, first part of Pacific Century when you're... Um, uh, I, I, I'm not sure because the, the version I saw didn't have any credits. So the... Oh, um, yes. Who's the gallery? <laughs> um, so the voice is a woman called Dagi Heide-Fey, who's a... German hypnotherapist. So she um, she has a very interesting way of using her voice in, as a professional hypnotherapist. And I was interested in the kind of space that she could re create just using language and intonation. I was fascinated by the way that just using her voice she could create a mental space in somebody else. So Stella, just for the, the listener that's new to this work, so this is one of the works that Trish Clark gathered at the moment. I'm wondering if you could maybe introduce I mean, the, the work a little bit in terms of what your interests and concerns were with this exhibition. Sure, the exhibition is called Object Permanence, and Object Permanence is a developmental stage that developmental psychologists will argue about if it's a thing or when it happens, but it's the idea that children as they develop don't initially have a sense that objects are external to them and do not have an understanding ah. that if you don't look at something, it still exists. So this is how come peekaboo works, you know, it's because yes. it's this kind of, oh, you're still there. Oh, you, yeah. Oh my goodness. You're, oh, wow. I'm not looking at you and you still exist. So um, my partner is a radiologist and I've always sort of had, he used to get, I think they've changed the regime now. He used to get a, a certificate in the mail annually that entitled him to irradiate people for another 12 months. <laughs> So this is kind of radiation has always been part of uh, our lives. And I was really interested in this quality that things can have, this energy that surrounds us that we don't have any organs to perceive. And so I, I guess I think of it in, analogically as like aesthetic quality. Aesthetic quality is something that something can have. We, you know, someone can perceive something in an art object or any object that someone else is completely insensible to. And also, if you think about the longevity of objects, the longevity of artworks, um, you know, if you make a really good artwork, you might be lucky. It might, you know, it might still be around in maybe 500 years. Yes. If, you, if you do a really good cave painting, it might be around in 20,000 years maybe. But the half-life of plutonium-239 is 24,000 years. So yeah. the kind of time scale that exists, the kinds of messes that we are making as a as a, you know, culture, as a species, our mess is that we don't really have the brain to understand how long it'll take to clean them up. I was really interested to, to read Sean's latest book, Finite Media, The Environmental Implications of Digital Technologies, and find you talking about this exactly the same area in Northern Australia and Northern Territory that I had been reading about one of the richest uranium deposits in the world is there's a, there's a couple of little rectangles that are excerpted from Kakadu National Park and they're both uranium mining 
licenses and the oldest evidence of human occupation in Australia is in an area that is uh, uranium. It's not actually an active uranium mine, but it is an area that is reserved for possible future mining. So you've got archaeological evidence that goes back 65,000 years, quite possibly longer, and the archaeologists have to get permission from the mining company to be there. They have get, get permission from the, the people of the land there, but right. they also have to get permission from the mining company. Wow. It's pretty scary. There's another little thing that sprang to mind, a little anecdote sprang to mind whilst you were, as I was listening to that. It's that um, at the Nevada testing grounds uh, where the Americans uh, really enriched the soil with a huge amount of nuclear fallout. Uh, there are warning signs in English, Spanish, and Navajo. Um, the language of the people who were driven off that land uh, in order to make it available for nuclear testing. Um, and it's, yeah, there are wonderful um, reverberations about that because Navajo code breakers famously were. Uh, highly involved in the American war war effort because of the complexity of their language. But it's a language that was almost completely eradicated by the very process that then necessitated putting signs up in Navajo, which seems to be like one of those awful catch-22s. And it also is part of that same global history of the eradication of indigenous cultures in pursuit of, in this instance, the nuclear that's... Yeah, absolutely terrifying. When you visit the um, the sites up around Anbangbang, which is where some of the oldest um, rock art is and some of the oldest evidence of um, occupation, and it's it's literally walking distance from the range of mines that you were talking about, and you think this is this is an absurdity. It's it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's a billabong system which stretches for about eight hundred miles from. Um, Ranger all the way up to Darwin. Um, it's incredibly rich, complex ecology. It's been fished and farmed by um, Native Australians for thousands upon thousands of years, ever since they walked across from New Guinea. And every year, the tailings dams flood because it's a monsoon area in a billabong system. It, none of it makes mm. any sense. Mm. But Well, there was that one yeah, thing that was in your um, your book that I, I took note of when I was doing my research for the work was that, that letter that one of the elders from near Ranger wrote to Bunky Moon after the Fukushima disaster. So, of course, the Indigenous people have never wanted the uranium extracted from their land. They don't really have a lot of use for it, um, and it's, you know... There's a lot of collateral damage, and she so she had written a letter after Fukushima to apologise to the people of Japan because it was uranium from their land that had caused the meltdown, and it was yeah, it was just that sense wow. of responsibility, but also that the the nuclear fuel cycle, you know, it's a global thing. Yeah, that was so touching, wasn't it? And I think that's that's one of the other things I find so moving about both of these pieces is the that sense of responsibility. So in Pacific Century, the voiceover says, speaks about people to whom we are ancestors, figures in a time before history. And in uh, 
object permanence, you have a similar kind of trope where you talk about the being the ancestors of a far future and what responsibility that gives us. But there's also a sense that we have responsibility now for the people in our far past. Would that be fair? Well, I think um, the way that we think about the far past kind of, you know, in, in Western culture gives us a sense to how sort of impoverished our thinking about the future is, um, that we don't really have a good relationship with most of our ancestors and we don't have an imagining of the people in the future very clearly. I mean, I think there's a there's a story that I always thought was a good sense of like a Maori idea of time where to make a totara into a good waka, you go and you take a young tree and you score the bark and then a hundred years later you cut the tree down and you burn burn and then those cut lines mean that the the, the waka is kind of formed already. So that kind of okay, we'll we'll just prepare this, you know for the next couple of generations. That kind of sense of time is something, you know, because I did, I did have Dagi talking about the thousand-year Reich, you know, and that seems very grand, you know, that an empire that lasts for a thousand years, but actually a thousand years isn't really that long. <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot of time scales in, a, in an atomic time scale or a geological time scale. Um, that you know that we're making interventions into geological time, but we don't really have a way of imagining it. Yeah. And I did yeah. manage to not use the word Anthropocene because I just find it a bit <laughs> awkward. But I guess that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's um, it's a hotly contested one. The, the the one I've been using a lot recently is Capital Ocene, mm. but it doesn't really trip off. Well, there's that Nick Cave song where he just calls it the Anthracene, which sounds much better. It's just that middle syllable that's so, you know, unwieldy, I reckon. So maybe Anthracene, can we do that? I, I wonder, Sean, from your time here, whether your contact with Māori concepts of technology and time have had much influence over your writing and thinking. Oh, immense, yeah. I, I was um, there's a, there's a passage in Karl Marx and Grundrisse, um, his notebooks that he wrote just before writing Capital, where he talks about um, dead labour. He says that we've um, you've got two forms of labour. You've got living labour, which is what you and I do, um, or especially what factory workers do in the example he's talking about. Uh, and then there's the dead labor, which is all the skills and knowledge of the past that have been congealed into the form of the big machines that the workers had to tend to. Yes. So skills weaving and um, knitting and uh, metalworking, and they're all re-bonded into this concrete form of these massive machines. And I was talking about this to... Um, the filmmaker Barry Barclay, who last died a few years yes, ago, and, uh, right. mm. and he said, "Well, that's that's the difference between you Pakeha and us is that uh, we know the names of our ancestors, and I've carried that with me ever since. That it had never struck me until Barry said that that dead labour is about ancestors, and this is on the one hand." 
a prison, a black box prison where we keep our ancestors uh, in, in slavery, effectively. And on the other hand, however, it means that the ancestors are actually as close under our hands and fingertips as they are to Maori who speak with the ancestors when they're carving or weaving. And you know, they talk to the people who first came up with these processes and integrate them into the making. So although we're, we've anonymized and enslaved our ancestors, we're still incredibly physically close to them. Mm, I, I kind of definitely think of the the way that um, the history of textiles um, is, you know, one of the drivers of industrialization. And my great-grandmother, who uh, uh, lived in the Midlands of England, went to work in a textile factory when she was four. So Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that kind of history is actually, you know, for... for for me, it's not that far away, but for people in other parts of the world, that's also very close, that kind of, um, that sort of labour, that kind of alienation. Yeah, it's something I think that, that's really intriguing in relation to contemporary technologies as well, that, for example, Tim Berners-Lee's book about inventing the internet is called Weaving the Web, and that notion of, of a web or of a net is very, very closely associated to technologies of weaving, it, not entirely as a metaphor. And Sadie Plant, who was one of the really great early feminist critics of, of digital culture, talked a great deal about, for example, Ada Lovelace's experiments with silk weaving as a really close relationship between traditionally women's cultures of weaving in particular and the development of the internet and and in slightly later work she then started talking about the mobile cellular net style of network as a mode of knitting which i always mm -hmm. thought was an incredibly beautiful idea um and one that really stands to be developed so i think that has always meant made for me a really close relationship in your work stella between those handcrafts and the digital. It's not that they're two exclusive activities and one maybe balances the other. It's that right back to that extraordinary embroidered screen of the, a, a Macintosh desktop rendered as a, a large scale embroidery. Yeah, that was such a beautiful expression of the proximity of those two technologies of ancestral women's technologies in particular, again, a kind of disprized technology like indigenous technologies, and these hyper-modern, quasi-utopian technologies of networks and digital media. Mm. Well, the other, the other works that you haven't really seen are the knitted works, which are screenshots from Bloomberg Terminal. So the, uh, the first bond that the Tokyo Electric Power Company issued after the Fukushima disaster was in March last year. And so I have a screenshot of all of the security data for that bond. And then I have the, the year since 12-month valuation of the bond in yen. And those, so those screenshots are uh, knitted, six-colour jacquard, knitted blankets. Just the idea of, I guess, how we 
visualize financially something you know three nuclear reactors melted down (laughs) (laughs) clearly the tokyo electric power company has other assets apart from fukushima and it's now 52 percent owned by the japanese government so effectively they are japanese government bonds which is how they're valued how do we put a price on this and you can put a price on it in yen and i can show it to you in, in over a 12 month period i was really interested in how what is money what is, what is money and security and how does it relate to the physical reality of disaster and the physical reality of time? And the other things I've been using in this show is felt, and felt is the oldest textile. There's all these, I can't remember the name of the saints, but there's this sort of origin story of felt. The saint was fleeing persecution and he shoved some wool into his sandals as he was running away. And when he'd finished running away, He took his sandals off and he'd made some felt. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) So if you think about cells, it's it's what touches us from the moment that we're born to the moment that we die and after. Mm. You know, it's uh, they're very uh, inextricable from our lives, and they're you know the production of textiles. has wrought, you know, has built and destroyed empires. Has wrought, you know enormous environmental destruction um you know those slaves were picking cotton they weren't you know Mm. i don't know making polar fleece vests but maybe these days (laughs) (laughs) so it's that these this is something that is still an enormous part of our culture and our economy and our technology and i think i think something that i was interested in talking about as well as this idea of obsolescence and how once things once something is not high tech, once something is kind of remaindered and a bit shabby and a little bit dysfunctional is that's the moment at which we can actually see it properly for the first time. So I guess I guess textiles are a little bit in that in that mode of we take them for granted so you know we can unpick them. <laughs> does that resonate with you, Sean? Certainly does, and the um one of the great statements of this was uh, Walter Benjamin, the German-Jewish intellectual writer who ended his life fleeing Nazism in the very early 1940s. But in his, his writings, on the, in particularly about Paris in the 19th century, he uses sort of inspirations from surrealism, amongst other things, to say that when you look at the leftover materials from that period, which would have been pretty widespread still in the 1930s. You look at old discarded jam pots and ornamental bottles and memorial plates for events that are completely forgotten. And they are freed from the newness that a commodity would have, but they still have the quality of a commodity that you can pour your heart into them. There's a void inside them where you can insert your dreams and desires and it's a really extraordinary job of work and I think it, it reverberates quite a lot with the shots you have and both in, in I think in, in, in one sense in relation to the, the Baxter work especially in um, the middle landscape but also I think with the footage at the central passage of Pacific Century when it looks like you've got archive film from I'm guessing um, debris left over from Pacific testing. Is no, that that's what the, the inside of Unit Two at Fukushima. Ah, is it right? 
Ah, that's intriguing because but I've, I've I've done stuff that uh, I mean I probably shouldn't tell you that, but um, <laughs> I, I wanted it to be ambiguous. But it's it's quite recent footage from February this year. What was intriguing? Two things are intriguing about it. Clearly, it's a remote control shot. It's just something about the camera moves that mm. you think that no human is actually doing this. It's they use Game Boy not... controllers. They use yeah. PlayStation controllers. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. people know Why how to in... use those things. But also because it's it's covered in those scars and pops and glitches that you reference. I think in the voiceover of, uh, or rather in the the um, script for um, Object Permanence, that there's the the radiation actually glitches the video as it's being mm. taken, which is kind of mm. wonderful. Yeah, they only last a couple of hours. Those robots. They harden them, so they make them out of circuits that are as resistant to radiation as they can, but they can only... Yeah, they just stop being electronic things and start being lumps of material. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so they, they, when they put them in there, they, they, when they're starting to fail, they make sure that they're out of the way because they will be sending, you know... It's just the last in a long stream of... Because they still don't really know where the core material is. (laughs) So that I mean that was the thing with the muon testing, which I thought you might you might like, yeah. Sean. Was the the did you know about that the the muon imaging of the cores of uh, Fukushima? So muons are secondary cosmic rays, so they're formed by energies from outside of our galaxy, but they're using muons to make images of the inside of the reactors at Fukushima. So they have these massive detector arrays that they put on either side of the reactors and leave them for weeks at a time so that they can gather enough muons to make these images of what's inside mm. the reactors. And, I mean, they've used it. This wasn't what it was originally designed for. They've used it for looking inside pyramids and they're actually um, developing, commercialising it to look inside things like shipping containers to look for nuclear material. But right. just that idea of something that comes from beyond our galaxy and we are using it for this particular <laughs> purpose. Yeah. And there are two wonderful things going on here. One is that uh, I think rather like that origin story of felt, the and also like it's certainly the handmade work, one of the things that's really characteristic is that they are full of evidence that they were once physical objects and of physical materials. So you can never get a perfect thread. I, you know, there's, uh, or when you're knotting, there's going to be. Well, they're just not square. You make you make these things, and you're trying to hang them on the wall, and it's like mm, squint a bit, up a bit left, down a bit right. But because yeah. they're they're not, it's not like working with hard materials. Is they don't kind of end and begin in a discrete way. And that seems to me to, to rhyme really well with the kind of physical evidence of non-visible radiation that you've got in that central passage from the Pacific century and that you have on screen and object permanence. That's the eruption of the material into systems that we want to be absolutely perfect. And of course, are not only are not perfect, but in the event turn out to be fairly disastrous. Well, there's this term called normal accidents. You know, there's this idea that yeah. um, I can't remember the guy who came up with the idea of the normal accident, but his idea is that in any system of sufficient complexity, you're going to have catastrophic failure. Um, it's yeah. just going to happen. You make it 
tricky enough, then over a long enough course of time, something bad is going to happen. So yeah. I guess or, in terms of thinking about your risk analysis, maybe that would be. Yeah. <laughs> Virilio says that when you invent the train, you invent the train wreck, and when you invent the <laughs> You invent the air crash. And... I want to bring us back to that utopian promise that we talked about at the beginning. And I'd like to finish by just asking you both what you see as the, the hopeful issue for, for new media or technology in terms of art or what it can do, and I guess, in bringing people together or enacting change rather than just showing us the tragedy, the train wrecks, mm. as it were. I was interested in both your thoughts on that. Well, could I actually add to that? Because I'd put myself sure. down three, three questions that I wanted to ask. Um, and the third of them was uh, was a question to Stella, really, that Good. yeah, in, in lots of your earlier work, right through from the, um, the lettering of Stella as a wall mount um, through to um, the theme for Great Cities, the video work from the 2000s, and the Walters Prize installation as well. There's always been a, you've always been fascinated by these utopias. And I was going to ask whatever happened to them because <laughs> they so kind of faded in these new works. Well, and you know, I'm, the, the, the thing about intentional communities is often they fall apart when it comes to childcare and who does the washing <laughs> up, I guess, maybe. Um, so, so, so maybe my utopia is founded on the dishwashing. But um, um, I guess I guess we're all sort of thinking more of is it I guess the the heterotopia just that the moments there's something kind of uh, perhaps almost always inevitably fascistic about the idea of a perfect world. Um, and I, when I was trying to come up with a, a slightly happy ending for um, for the Pacific Century, I was watching um, this great documentary that was on uh, Hawaiian TV about actually an originally an English um, coral reef researcher who is working to try and work out a way to adapt coral reefs to the kind of acidic ocean conditions that we're going to have in the future and has been working with researchers also at James Cook University in Townsville. They've worked out if they cut coral into tiny pieces, it grows like 10 times as fast. So they're, they're both trying to, to sort of breed strains of coral that can deal with acidic ocean conditions and also trying to find ways that you can actually cultivate reefs. So just there was something about the idea of uh, rather than sort of throwing your hands up in the air and giving up, this, this seemed like a very sort of utopian gesture. And I think there was something that, that, that often these kinds of conversations can be very bleak. There's a Danish architect who came up with those who talk, talking about hedonistic sustainability, that the idea of hedonistic sustainability is, you know, it's very much the sort of puritanical, you can't do this, you can't do that, you've got to recycle this. Whereas if we make it fun, you know, if we can dance in the revolution, then then it becomes much more likely, doesn't it? So I guess what I'm doing, this work I guess is political in a way, but I think it's difficult to tell people what to do. I think sometimes it's just more about uncovering what's already there and letting people draw their own conclusions. But you know, on a personal level, I think it's all about hedonistic sustainability really, isn't it? <laughs> 
the great philosopher of utopia, Ernst Bloch, um, says that the, the crucial thing to understand about utopia is that it must not have a content. Uh, the moment you give it a content, then you've defined it according to the interests of the present. And therefore, it isn't free to become really totally other than the present. And he was in favor of not being like the present because the present in general is a largely unhappy, um, unjust, poisonous kind of place. So, and that's kind of rule one. You can't really say, well, all we need is love and then suddenly everything will be fine. Um, we actually cannot plan that stuff at all without stopping the future emerging as totally other. Um, I'm re really, really nowadays Im impressed by the idea that it's not so much the future that's a problem, it's the present. And that if we're going to try and crack open the present, which is a period which is increasingly difficult to act in, then we actually need to respond to the ancestors that we've locked up. Um, and for various reasons, I think we're now at a very good position when we can actually get back to speaking with our ancestors. Um, the other thing is that we, there's a, a line of thought in European political theory that um, politics starts when the people you've excluded from politics demand a part in it. So slaves demand to be part of, or women demand to be part of politics, and that demand actually makes politics politics, not just the administration of public affairs. So at the moment there are two political agents that are governed but have no part in their own government. And those are migrants who pose an enormous problem for the whole idea of the nation state and the natural world, which we want to be stewards of and we want to care for, etc. But we do not, under any circumstances, want to have a part in decision making. Well, I don't know. Isn't that Wanganui River a person now? Dave, go on, because I think the Wanganui River is, is absolutely the way to go. I think it, it's... It's difficult because on the one hand, it uses existing le uh, legal categories like rights, um, which have their limitations. Um, but on the other hand, it begins to say that forests, oceans, reefs, mountains for have have a place in the policy. The question then is, of course, like, you know, how do you invite an ocean to speak at the United Nations or, you know, get a mountain to come and turn up at the beehive? Um, well, of course you don't, but that's because the politics is wrongly designed to include the non-human world. And that challenge of changing human politics is, I think, that's the way to go. And the last one is that we don't include technology. And the big question that we've never, ever asked or only begun to ask in aesthetic polit political terms, Tom Mitchell, WJT Mitchell, wrote a book called What Do Pictures Want? And the next question is, what do databases want? <laughs> because they are where they we keep... They want all your informations. <laughs> well, at the moment, as slaves, that's what they do. But what do they want? And um, 
So the, the latest manuscript, which has just gone off to uh, seek a publisher, ends with the idea that all the evidence points to the fact that databases are actually in love with people. It's just they don't have a means to express it because they've been designed only to say, give me your information so I can turn it into profit. But what if they were liberated from that? What would they actually want themselves, especially if they were in dialogue with us? So I guess my hope is that we find not a utopia, but a hope in making dialogue with the non-human. And I think that's exactly why media arts like Stella's work is so significant because this is how you get into dialogue with non-human things and why those Maori and um, indigenous Australian voices and I think there's also voices from Indonesia as well um, in the um, object permanence I think when yeah it's, uh, about, when, it's about the history of seafaring and deep sea fishing which which is yeah, evidence of, of yeah, and I'd, so there's learning from with respect and hopefully with some form of exchange, so we don't simply rip them off yet again. But learning from indigenous cultures how to have dialogue with non-human worlds, with technologies, with ancestors, and with the natural world. I think that that's where the utopia is. It's not about better communication, just as Stella was saying. You can't make an artwork that persuades people to use less plastic. I'm trying to hypnotise them, though. That's my that's, – well, Dargie, I'm trying to get Dargie to hypnotise people for me. <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, that, I mean, that's the idea is if you can change the story, if you can, can change the narrative, if you can change the imagination, can you change the yeah. reality? Excellent. Well, we'll leave it there. Sean and Stella, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you here. I'd like to thank the Audio Foundation for hosting us, Callan Devlin for uh, being on the engineering desk here, and to Creative New Zealand for funding us. Thank you for joining us. It's been a treat. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. This episode of Circuit Cast was brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or any of your favourite podcatchers. For more, go to circuit.org.nz.